Well, I don't know about you, but I love things that are familiar, right? Because when something's familiar, you don't have to spend as much uh, time, uh, emotional energy processing through something that's familiar. But when you enter an unfamiliar context, it takes a greater level of intentionality, it takes more uh, mental and emotional energy to process something that's new and unfamiliar because it's unpredictable, because it's new. And so take, for example, like starting a new job. When you start a new job, there's that kind of first day jitters, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of stress. Why? Because it's all new, it's, it's all unfamiliar. And so things that you might have taken for granted of at your old job that you just knew to do, when you step into something unfamiliar, it's all new. And so suddenly on your way to your first day of work, you might be thinking about what you're wearing. And you're thinking, I hope I'm not underdressed or overdressed. I wonder what the culture at this new place is like. Are people uber professional? Is it more laid back? And there's all sorts of these things that we spend emotional and mental time and energy processing through when something is unfamiliar. So there's something about familiar places and familiar contexts that's kind of disarming. It puts us at ease. It puts us at rest. And so for me, I like that. I like things that are familiar. I like things that I know and understand. But I think there's some challenges to familiarity. When something is is really familiar, I think there's a couple things that can happen. One, I think when we get really familiar with something, it's easy to get careless and complacent. And so when something's new, like I said, we spend this time and energy and intentionality thinking and processing about it, but as it gets more and more familiar, we just sort of take it for granted, and it's easy to get careless and complacent. So for me, uh, after college, I was between uh, ministry uh, opportunities, and so I worked construction for six months. And we were on one particular job site, and I was using a miter saw to cut studs, and I was passing them on to the guy who was doing the framing, and we were in a hurry, so I'm, I'm just you know, slicing through these studs. Now, they had taken the guard off of this saw. I guess it saves you two seconds of time. I don't know. Probably OSHA wouldn't approve of this, uh, but they did it. And so I'm, I'm sliding this guy, uh, the studs. I go to reach for the next one, and the blade's still spinning down, and I caught my thumb in the blade, right? And now there's this moment. It's like simultaneously two different things. It was sheer panic, but also utter relief that I didn't lose my thumb, right? And so I, I got the bleeding to stop, and fortunately, the only long-term damage was to my pride because I never heard the end of catching my thumb in the saw. But what happened was I got so familiar with it that I stopped being careful, and I got careless. Complacency, I think, is another very real danger of familiarity, and I think we see this often play out in the context of relationships, whether it's a friendship, a marriage, a dating relationship. We get so familiar and so comfortable that we, we sort of get complacent and we stop being intentional. I think the second thing that happens with familiarity is that when we get really familiar with something, it starts to seem common or ordinary, even if it should seem extraordinary. So I remember being on a mission trip in the state of Alaska. We were doing work projects in college, and I remember just being awestruck at the mountain range that lined this camp that we were working at. And I asked one of the workers, I said, you must just get distracted all the time at looking at the mountains around here. And he responded, he said, honestly, uh, a lot of days I'm so busy, I just, I get in my routine, routine, I don't even notice. And he was so familiar with the context that to me, what was extraordinary, this beautiful mountain range for him seems ordinary and seemed common. And he stopped being awestruck by it. So why talk about this idea of familiarity? I want to talk about it because uh, we're in part three of our series on the Lord's Prayer, and I think the Lord's Prayer is perhaps one of the most common chunks of Scripture. 
Probably many of us have it memorized. You, you could quote it in your head. If I, if I started to say it now, even without it being on the screen, probably a lot of you could join in with me. The problem is I think we're so familiar with the Lord's Prayer that we stop being marked by it. We stop being unsettled by it, and it sort of becomes common and ordinary and routine, and we've gotten complacent with it, and it seems like we've gotten sort of, uh, yeah, it's the Lord's Prayer. So part of what I want to do this morning is I want to disrupt us a little bit. I, w- I want to shake us up a little bit as we look at the Lord's Prayer in depth and with some intentionality. I want us to, to leave here challenged to engage in new ways and unsettled about what I think the Lord's Prayer is calling us to. Because I think what Steve said last week, he said it takes 21 seconds to say the Lord's Prayer, but it will become 21 seconds that can radically change your life. I believe that. And so as we dive in to the beginning of the prayer today, I want to challenge us to see it with new, fresh perspective, not carelessly, not complacently, and not seeing it as common, but I want us to understand it and see it as an extraordinary calling on our lives. So the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is part of a larger teaching that Jesus is doing. We often call it the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins in Matthew chapter 5. And if you begin reading in Matthew chapter 5, we find that Jesus is is teaching and the crowds begin to gather to him. And as the crowd gets bigger, it says that Jesus went up on a, a mountainside to teach. And it says his disciples came to him and he began to teach his disciples. So the Sermon on the Mount, of which the Lord's Prayer is a part of, is primarily a teaching to Jesus' disciples. These are people who have made a decisive commitment to invest their lives wholeheartedly in the mission of Jesus. And part of what Jesus is teaching them in the Sermon on the Mount is he's describing for them what the culture of the kingdom of God looks like. And the kingdom of God is is, is this reality of what it will look like when Jesus is our supreme king and ruler of all. When Jesus sets up his kingdom, what will the culture of that country and of that kingdom look like? And Jesus begins to describe that in the Sermon on the Mount. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 6, where the Lord's Prayer begins, there's this assumption that for Jesus, a large part of the culture of the kingdom of God is that the, the disciples will be people of prayer. There's this assumption for Jesus that, that his disciples will foundationally build their lives on the act of prayer. So as we unpack this this morning, I want to look at three three questions. If it's true that Jesus calls us to prayer, and we'll walk through that in a second, what is prayer? Why should we even want to pray? As we look at the Lord's Prayer, and specifically, I want to look at this question. What does it say about our identity as God's people? And finally, what does it say about God's identity? And, and, And out of that, how do we respond? How are we called to engage in a new way? Because as I said earlier, I think as we pray the Lord's Prayer, you will find it disrupting your life and calling your life in a new direction. So Matthew, chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. It says this, And when you pray, do not be like hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. 
Now, did you notice there, three times in four verses, Jesus says this in verse 5, he says, and when you pray, verse 6, but when you pray, verse 7, when you pray, for Jesus, he doesn't say, you know, if you get around to it, if you've got nothing else going on and you find yourself bored, maybe you'll try prayer. No, Jesus' assumption, he says, and when you pray. And three times he reiterates this with his disciples. And so Jesus begins with this starting assumption that the disciples, the people that he's teaching to, are people of prayer who are actively engaging in a prayer life with God. So if that's Jesus' assumption, that you and I as disciples of Jesus will be people of prayer, I think it begs this question, what is prayer? What do we mean by saying we should be a people of prayer? There's a pastor by the name of Brennan Manning who talks about an elderly gentleman that he'd befriended. And over the course of their relationship, this elderly man, this friend of his, his health began to deteriorate. And eventually he was bedridden in a hospital and and Brennan went to see him. And he walked into the hospital room and he noticed that there was a chair set up in the room, which was unusual for this hospital. They didn't, didn't have a lot of furniture in the room. So Brennan walked in and he goes, oh, you've got a chair for me. I I see that you're expecting me. And the man kind of chuckled. He says, no. He said, Brennan, uh, actually, that that chair's not for you. And Brennan says, oh, so you must have family or other visitors coming this afternoon. And the gentleman again looks at Brennan and he says, no, no, that's not not what it is. Brennan goes, well, well, what's with the chair then? How would you get this special request in your your hospital room? And this guy kind of looks at Brennan with a sheepish smile and he says, Well, you might think I'm crazy, he said, but I've been trying to understand what prayer is. And he said, I I went to my pastor and I said, what's a resource you can give me on prayer? And he said, he gave me this book by a famous theologian. He said, in the first two pages, I had to look up like 10 words. He said, I put down the book, gave it back to my pastor. I said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm more confused now than I was before about what prayer even is. But he said, Brennan, the the only thing I know to do is I talk to, to God just like he was sitting in this chair right here. And, and he looked at him and he goes, Brennan, do, do you think that's prayer? And Brennan kind of chuckled. He goes, you don't need to ask me that. He says, you know that's what prayer is. And here's the reality. Prayer is simply this. Prayer is having a conversation with the God of all creation, right? It's, it's that simple. Prayer is this opportunity that you and I have to enter into a conversation with the God of all the universe, and, and, and there's two, I think, key components to this. The first component to prayer is that we have access. You and I have access to the very God of all creation. Listen to how Ephesians chapter 3 says this. Ephesians 3 says it this way. In verse 12, it says, In Jesus, and through our faith in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. In other words, we have access to him. And I think this is utterly mind-blowing because there are not too many people of influence that we have this kind of unrestricted access with. Like if I, if I wanted to talk to the President of the United States and I decide I'm going to walk into the White House, I will leave in handcuffs. Why? Because I don't have access. I don't have an appointment. I couldn't walk into our state representative's office and, and say, hey, I'm, I'm here to, to meet them. They'd say, well, do you have an appointment? Nope. Okay, we'll see you later. I don't have access. So I think this is utterly mind-blowing that the God of all creation grants us access into his presence. And not only that, but Paul says in Ephesians, he says we can approach with freedom. Anytime we want, we can walk into the presence of God and we can approach him confidently. I love that it says we can approach him confidently. There's no hesitation about like, 
Ooh, I wonder if God's upset that I'm here. I hope I'm not bothering him. No, we have the confidence to approach him knowing that God desires to be in a relationship with us. And in fact, this fundamentally changes the way that we pray. Because notice what Jesus says to the disciples before the Lord's Prayer. He says, and when you pray, verse 7, don't keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Now, why would the pagans, those who, who weren't Christians at this time, why would they keep babbling in their prayer? Well, for them, there was this thought process that, that their God had to be appeased. And so if their God was going to hear their prayer, they had to have all these elaborate words, and they had to have a lot of them. And if you strung together enough elaborate words and had enough of them, then maybe God would listen to you. And so for the pagan religions, there was this sort of timidness of coming before their God and like, I hope my prayer is good enough. I hope God will receive it. Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how you pray as, as believers. He says, you can enter confidently and freely. In fact, the language that Jesus uses is that we can call God our Father. I mean, this, this, this is audacious. This is mind-blowing. That the God of all creation says, yeah, you can have access to me anytime you want. In fact, you can approach me and call me Father. And this is, uh, the word Father there is an Aramaic word. In, in, in the original language, this is a word of closeness. It, it's it, kind of the essence of saying, you can approach God and call him Daddy. That's mind-blowing to me. That the God of all creation says, yeah, enter boldly. Anytime you want, you have access to me. The second component to prayer, access, the second component is intimacy. James 4, verse 8 says that when we approach God, when we come near to God, He will come near to us. I, I think this is mind-blowing, that we can enter confidently and freely into God's presence, and when you draw near to Him, God Himself will draw near to you. And so there, there is a real relationship that's close and intimate that's taking place. And it's out of that relationship that we have the freedom to call God our Father as we approach him in prayer. So what is prayer? It's a conversation with the God of all creation in which we have access to him and we have intimacy with him. So Jesus then teaches his disciples to pray. In verse 9, he says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I think the other thing that's so mind-blowing about this is that this says, I think, as we call God our Father, it says something very profound about our identity. This language of God as Father speaks of relationship. The reality that God is our Father means this. This is the profound thing about our identity. You and I are children of God. This changes everything. This language of Father is relational, and it speaks of the reality that we can enter the very presence of God boldly and with confidence that you and I are children of God. Now, there's uh, occasional times when my wife, she might get off work early, and she'll go to daycare and pick up our three little girls. They're four, two and a half, and almost one. And she might, after she picks them up, occasionally she'll bring them by the office at like 4.30 in the afternoon or so. And I will tell you this, when my three little girls show up and they're peeking in my office window, right, and they're excited, and they're plastering the picture they painted in the window, and they're smiling and jumping up and down, they don't have to do anything for me to open my office door, right? They don't need to bring me presents. They don't need to say a lot of nice, flattering things. I'm just excited to see them. Why? Because they're my kids. 
And Jesus says, and this is mind-blowing, he says, the God of all creation invites you to approach him in prayer, and you can approach him as your father, which means that you and I, the truth of our identity is that we are children of God. Listen to how, what it says in, in Hebrews chapter 2. I think this is a profound way to put this. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, says this. It says, but we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. But now he's crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make Jesus perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same family. Catch this. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. This is profound to me, that Jesus looks at you and he says, these people, this is my brother, this is my sister. And I love that it says that he's not ashamed, that Jesus with pride says, yes, this is my family. That God eagerly adopts us as his children and changes the very core of our identity. That we don't have to enter his presence timidly going, I hope I'm not bothering him. But Jesus says, come on in. You can talk to my dad because he's your dad too. This utterly changes our identity. And that we can approach God as our father. I think no further than this in the prayer, there are three things that we're reminded of. First, I think we're reminded of our salvation. Did you notice what Hebrews chapter two said? It says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, but how can he call us brothers and sisters? Because it said earlier that Jesus tasted death for everyone. And so there's this reality that Scripture tells us that because of sin, because of rebellion against God, what we rightly deserve is separation from God. What we rightly deserve is death. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus tasted death for you and I. He died for us, the penalty that we deserved. He died in our place so that we could be adopted as the sons and daughters of God. And so you get no further than this in the prayer. You pray, our Father. This is a reminder that you are adopted and that Jesus has died and conquered death for us. I hope that that stops us in our tracks and is a reminder of the beauty of the, of, of the saving work of Jesus. The second thing I think that calling God our Father is a reminder of is it's a reminder of the family that we're a part of. Do you know what this is every Sunday morning when we gather? Take a moment just to look around the room. Do you ever, do you ever just sit and take it in? Look around the room for a second. Do you know what this is? If we take the Lord's Prayer seriously, if we take Hebrews chapter 2 seriously, every Sunday we get to be a part of a family reunion. The body of Christ gathers. The brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God get to gather every Sunday. And we get to speak life and truth and hope into one another. Because do you notice that this word, this hour, this is plural. It doesn't say you can pray and call God my father or your father. No, we're challenged to pray our father. This is a communal term. This is a plural term. And so we're reminded that we are part of a much larger community. We are reminded that I cannot do faith on my own, that I need brothers and sisters who can push me on towards love and good deeds, as Paul says. This is a communal undertaking. And so I think as we pray, our Father, we are reminded of our salvation, that Jesus died for us, that we can be adopted as sons and daughters. We're reminded that we're part of a family, our Father. Finally, I think we're reminded as we pray about our Father, we're reminded of our mission. Exodus chapter 4 says this. 
in verse 22. This is God, and he's talking to Pharaoh, or to Moses. He says, Go say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go. Do you notice the father-son language there? So the language of God as Father is not unique to the New Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, there is this imagery of God being the Father to his chosen people. And so God tells uh, Moses, he says, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my son go. Now the people of Israel were in captivity in Egypt. They were being forced into slave labor. And God says, I want you to go, Moses, to Pharaoh and tell him that he's got my son in slavery and I want him to let my son go so that he can walk in freedom, so that my people can be free. But notice what it says, it continues. Let my son go, why? So that he may serve me. Let my son go so that he may serve me. The New Testament scholar and the pastor, N.T. Wright, says this. He says, when we look at this phrase, our father, he says, if you are a Jewish person in the first century, and that's part of your context, he says, you cannot read this phrase, our father, without being reminded of the Exodus language of God calling his people his sons and daughters. And he says, the Jewish people of this time, they would have read our father and they would have been reminded that God called them out of bondage and slavery to freedom. Why? Not so that they could live a comfortable life. God calls them to freedom so that they can serve him. So to call God our father is to say, we will be about the will and the work of the father. John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. If we are going to call God our Father, the next question becomes, God, what is your will? What is your mission? What are you doing? And how can I partner with God in the midst of that? Church, here's the thing. You and I are called to step into the heart of the very broken places of this world and to call attention to the redemptive, hopeful possibilities of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you that I do not believe that there is a situation that is beyond the grasp of God's grace? That no matter what brokenness you encounter, the gospel can bring hope and healing and redemption and new life to those places. And Jesus calls you and I to be a part of that. As the sons and daughters of God, we are to be about the will and the work and the mission of our Father. Are you feeling disrupted yet? Is your familiarity with this prayer starting to break open? And are you finding new life and new challenge in what it means to call God our Father? And I will confess to you that so many times I pray the Lord's Prayer and I want to call God my Father and I want to pray, yes, give me my daily bread and, and forgive me my sins. But I can't pray that without also taking on the mission of what God is calling us to. And Steve's going to push into that more next week. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's all about being part of the mission of God. So every time we pray this prayer, our Father, pause. It's a reminder of our identity. It's a reminder of our salvation. It's a reminder of our family. And it's a reminder of our mission. That we are called to actively engage in the work that God is doing. But I think this passage also says something profound about the God that we serve. He's not just our Father, but He's our Father in heaven. And it says, hallowed be your name. And this word hallowed, it means to make holy. And so part of what we see, the simple truth is this, God is holy. Simple observation here. God is holy. That God is holy. That God is our Heavenly Father says some things. It says, first of all, that God is worthy of our worship and praise. If we're going to call God our Heavenly Father, and if we were going to say, God, your name is holy, part of what that means is that God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is all-majestic. God holds all things in his hand. God is, 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 is beyond capable. 
And here's why I think we need to grasp this, because if we don't understand that God is our heavenly Father who's holy and all-powerful and all-knowing, we cannot pray, give us today our daily bread. Right? That's a prayer of dependence on the provision of God. So unless we can grasp that God is our holy heavenly Father who is beyond capable, who holds all things in his hand, none of the rest of the prayer makes sense. This is utterly foundational. That God is our holy, heavenly Father means that God is worthy of our praise and of our worship. And and here's the reality about worship. I think, again, worship is simple. Prayer is about having a conversation with God. Worship is about praising and thanking God for who he is and what he's done. So as we pray our Father, and we're reminded of what Jesus has done for us, dying on the cross, adopting us into the family of God, When we get to this next part and we realize that God is our Heavenly Father, that He's worthy of our praise, all this is is a moment to stop and say, God, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son to die for me. Thank you for inviting me into new life in you. Thank you for giving me the freedom to call you Abba, Father, Daddy, and welcoming me into your presence. And I think what you find is, as you begin to worship God, as you begin to praise Him and thank Him for what He's done in your life, it does a couple things. I think one thing that worship does is, is it brings perspective. Worship brings perspective. How many times do you come up against an obstacle in your life? You hit difficult circumstances, and if you're like me, my tendency is to look at my circumstances and go, it's hopeless. God, what are you doing? And, and I get so frustrated, and the problem is all my attention is on my difficult circumstances. But catch this, when we start to praise and worship God, what happens is our perspective is shifted from our circumstances, and we begin to focus on who God is. And when we remember that God is our heavenly Father who is holy and majestic and holds all things in His hand, we are reminded that God is bigger than our circumstances, and in fact, God holds our circumstances in His hand. And the reality is we cannot afford not to be a people of worship because to not engage in worship is to lose perspective on reality. It's as we worship him that we are reminded over and over again about who God is and what he's done on our behalf. Here's the other component to this, though, too. Worship is not just about what happens in this room. I think it's easy to talk about going to a worship service. We're going to go on Sunday, we'll worship God, and then we leave. But can I tell you, worship does not stop at that back wall. I think some of the most profound worship continues as you leave this church and as you step into your routine, everyday life in the course of a week. Because if we're going to recognize hallowed, holy, may may God's name be made holy. Okay, catch this with me. If God has adopted us as his children, we can call him Father, right? That means we bear the family name. Did you, did you know in, in, the, in the early church, it was common practice when you were baptized to not use your last name? So if I was going to be baptized, they would say, Aaron, you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they wouldn't use my last name because I took on a new last name of Christian. I was a part of the family of God, of the people of God, and my identity is fundamentally shifted. I am no longer Aaron Cloud. I am Aaron, adopted and, and accepted into the family of Christ. So the reality is we bear a family name. And so part of upholding the holiness of God's name is that as we bear God's name, as we step out into the world as Christians, living rightly becomes a way of upholding the holiness of God's name. So when you step into your workplace on Monday morning or Wednesday morning this week, 
And you live in a way that calls attention to the hope and to the truth and to the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. You uphold the holiness of God's name, and that is a sacred act of worship. And so what happens is you start to, to bring the presence of God to the place where you live and where you work. And those ordinary places start to become sacred, holy ground as you call attention to the reality of God's character and to the truth of who he is in your life. Side note here, I want, I want us to notice this. Do you notice it says, Father in heaven, hallowed, may your name be made holy. Do you notice that the emphasis is on your name being God? I think part of what we're called to here is a relinquishing of recognition. It's not about drawing attention to our name. It's about upholding the holiness of God's name. And I think part of what we see in this first two lines of this prayer is a total reorienting of our life towards the will and the work and the mission of the Father, saying, God, may your name be what's great in my life. May your name be made holy because it's about you. So I think, I hope we're asking this question, so, so what do we do with this? What do we do? I, I want to challenge us to simply do this. I want to challenge us to engage, right? To engage means to be actively involved. And, and I think out of this first chunk of this prayer, I think there's four ways that we can be engaged. Number one is be engaged in community. Right Earlier I said that every Sunday as we gather that this is a family reunion. Listen, don't be the person who shows up to the family reunion, sits in the corner disengaged and closed off. No one can afford that. I cannot afford that. I need people in my life who will ask me the tough questions, who will encourage me. We need to do life in the family environment with brothers and sisters. Actively engage. Be concerned about the well-being of people around you. Open up your life. Be vulnerable with someone that you can invite in to speak truth into your life. Actively engage. Our Father, right? It's a plural. This is a communal prayer. Secondly, I think engage in a relationship with God through prayer. Right? Jesus' assumption, we, we looked at it in Matthew chapter 5, three times in the first three verses, in, in 5 through 8, he says, and when you pray, and when you pray, and when you pray, Jesus' assumption is that as the body of believers that we will be people of prayer. And, and for me, there was this phrase that, that really changed my thinking. It's really commonplace to say, I don't have time for fill in the blank. I don't have time to eat healthy, or I don't have time to work out, or I don't have time to pray. And I'm stealing this from somebody, but I don't remember who, so I can't attribute the source. But they said, instead of, instead of saying, I don't have time for, change the phrase and say, it's not a priority for me. So don't say, I don't have time to pray. Say, honestly, it's not a priority for me to be a person of prayer. Ugh. Anybody else feel the sting of that? Yeah, I do too. But I think it's true because the things that we really make a priority, we don't find time for, we make time for. If it's really a priority, it will happen. So let's not trick ourselves into thinking, I'm too busy to pray. Let's be honest with ourselves and say the reality is, it's not a priority to me. But listen, if it was important enough for Jesus to urge his disciples to be people of prayer, to give them a model of prayer, let's step into it boldly. And I mean, can you... Think about this too, right? We talked about how to pray is to have a conversation with God. It's to have access to him. It's to have an intimate relationship with him. Can you imagine if the most important person in the world said, you have an open, open door in my office anytime you want, and you never went back? I mean, that seems silly, right? We, we look at that and go, what are you thinking there? Take him up on that offer. 
And yet the God of all creation says, anytime you want, you can approach me with freedom and confidently anytime and I'll be present. And how many times do we, do we just not take God up on that? Let us engage. Let us be actively involved and invested in the life of prayer. Third, let us be engaged in the mission of God. Right? Jesus says, as the Father has, has sent me, so I am sending you. Let's live as sent people. Right? So as you go to work on Monday morning, part of my prayer is that as you go to your workplace, that the Holy Spirit just wrecks your heart and suddenly you can't go to work and just do your job, but the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, how can you speak truth and life and hope into the people around you? I hope that when you go to a 4th of July picnic on Tuesday, I hope that God's conviction just wrecks your heart and he says, who can you pray for at this cookout? Who, who can you speak truth to? Who can you encourage? Who can you just give a hug to and love on? Who can you show my grace to? And I pray that we live really, really, really invested in what it means to be a sent people who are about the work and the will and the mission of the Father. The call of Jesus Christ is not a call to comfortable living. I pray that this wrecks us. Do you see why for me the, the problem of familiarity is such an issue? Do you know how many times I've read through this prayer and say, yep, I love that God's my Father. And I haven't taken seriously that to call God my Father is an invitation to be a part of what God is doing. Finally, I pray that we would engage in worship. And I don't mean just singing on a Sunday morning. I mean holistically engage in worship. Yes, pour your heart out in this moment. We're going to sing a song called Good, Good Father. And I think it's such an affirmation of the truth that we've been saying today. So yes, belt it out. Praise God. Thank God for who he is. But leave this place. Walk through those doors and live on mission. Worship God by living in a way that draws attention to the holiness, to the hallowedness of God's name as you live in a way that is love and grace-filled and impactful and caring and concerning for the people around you. My prayer today is that we're unsettled, that what seems familiar now is kind of boiling up in our heart, calling us to action, calling us to engage. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment when we can gather and worship. And Father, we are humbled today that the God of all creation, you invite us to enter your presence, that we can have a real conversation with you, that you say we can call you Father. God, I think that speaks profoundly to the close relational uh, connection that you desire with us. So God, I pray that today as we worship, as we sing about you as our good, good Father, God, may there be a paradigm shift in us. May we really own what it is that you are our Father, that we are your children, and may we be called, may we engage in prayer and in mission and in relationship. God, let this disrupt our lives. Disrupt the familiarity and give us a holy discontent that drives us towards serving you and bearing witness to the hope of Jesus. Father, we love you when we pray this in Jesus' name.